Hi, this and welcome to Reasonable and Necessary, Australia's premier podcast series on everything you ever wanted to know about the National Disability Insurance Scheme. I'm your host, Dr. George Talaporis, and on today's episode, we're talking with NDIS Quality and Safeguards Commissioner, Graham Head, and Registrar, Samantha Taylor. We'll be talking about the issues and challenges facing the SDA sector, as well as what are some of the common mistakes that providers are making and what are some ways they can do better. Hey, Graham and Samantha, welcome to the show. Thanks, George. Good to see you. It's great to have you on the show. I feel very lucky to have the two of you on and to talk about SBA and quality and safeguards. So can I start just by asking you both, what do you think uh, in terms of the current state of play with quality and safeguards and SBA? How's it all going? Well, I think, George, I'll start off on that. I, I think SBA is a very new thing in the NDIS and uh, I think we're, what we're all seeing is a, an emerging market, if you like, of, of providers uh, getting their heads around what people need and want and trying to respond to that, as well as participants starting to think about the complexity of engaging with um, more providers than they might have done before in terms of their housing needs. So, um, so I think it's, we're in really early days uh, and and really an educative phase, both um, for, for participants, for people with disability, to understand this this new set of arrangements, and um, with SDA providers really needing to think deeply about the opportunities out of the out of SDA to to deliver people um, housing that that suits their needs and is um, is a little bit different to what people might have experienced before. So there's a lot going on, I think, in terms of change in the SDA space. Uh, if I could just add to that briefly, George, I suppose in addition to the newness Sam's talking about there, that even although we're almost three years old, the quality and safeguarding arrangements themselves are still really relatively new. We're now getting to the back end of the transition process of providers into uh, the new arrangements all of the functions are stood up. But um, but that's really, I guess, the first phase of moving from what we had before to a new national approach to safeguarding. And within that, the issues associated with SDA being a, a relatively new creature in this space. It is relatively new, and, and there are a lot of new providers out there how do you think the new providers are going compared to, say, uh, providers who've been in the space for a long time? Well, I think that's a really great question, George, because it, the experience is mixed and you would expect it to be mixed with providers who, who don't have familiarity with um, working with people with disability who might not have had exposure to um, what people are aspiring to have happen in the context of the NDIS. Uh, and then you've got new providers who are coming in who are, who are really offering a product, if you like, uh, thinking about design of that product, 
and needing to build their experience in 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 understanding um, what it's designed to do for people in terms of their um, you know really good outcomes in the NDIS, really good exposure and participation in community and being able to live a good life. So I think there's there's a real spectrum here. We've got large providers coming in. We've got some small providers looking at investment opportunities. We've got providers who are coming up from um, from areas like um, community housing who have some experience but are thinking about how to modify uh, what they do to fit with the NDIS. Um, so there's there's a lot of variety. And what do you think uh, is the, do you think that the, the new guys are uh, sort of teaching the old guys a few things? I think it is mixed. I think there are some new guys coming in who have a lot of the providers that I deal with in the, in the SDA who are really engaged with the commission because they care about quality in the offering of SDA that they provide and they care about safety for people with disability. Uh, they're really wanting to think about how they shake this up and how we move away from some of the, the really traditional and, frankly, institutional uh, accommodation um, arrangements for people with disability to offer something that is really akin to what every Australian has by way of options. Uh, so, yeah. All right, let's talk about quality then. What do you, what do you think, as the Commissioner Graham, what does is, what is quality look like in, in, I guess, in some of the simplest terms we can use. I just want to, I want to unpack that term quality because we throw it around a lot, but what does it really mean? Well, we do often see quite kind of abstract discussion about what's meant by quality. And I think if you're somebody who's consuming uh, any service or, or product, what you really want to be able to see is what you can reasonably expect uh, that product, the standard it will, uh, it will perform to, and that there are kind of transparent criteria around that. So in this environment, I think what people with disability want is to know um, that there are a set of uh, standards that apply to uh, to SDA, that they've got access to good information to help them understand uh, those standards, that they can be confident that those standards uh, address the factors that are important and that they know where to go if they feel that, uh, that the quality they should have the right to expect is not present, um, that Often, uh, I think, uh, professionals who work in this space will talk about quality in a way that, um, that doesn't really uh, correspond to the way most of us think about something when we're buying something or accessing a service, where we want to know uh, that the relevant factors have been taken into consideration in determining how something should perform and that we know what they are and that we know how to tell whether or not those factors are present and we know what to do if we've got a concern. So that's kind of the way I think about it. Mm. I, I, I ran a, uh, had a podcast with um, tenants on this 
Science Officer non I asked them, you know, what's the what's the main thing that you want from your provider? And they said, I want them to listen to me. And I was like, kind of like, you can almost, um, you know, bring down all of the components of the, the practice standards to those, those three words, listen to me. That's right. And I think in, you know, discussions we've had before about, um, uh, and I don't know whether this is where you want me to sort of address this issue in today's conversation, but where we've talked about rights-based service delivery, that really this is about the person who is uh, uh, who, who is accessing these services for whom they're for being at the centre of, uh, of what's thought about and at the centre of action about the provision of those services. And that means uh, it's not about what value statement you've got on the office wall if you're a provider. It means how do you behave to the people who utilise your services? Are those people properly at the centre of how you construct your business model and service model? Do you listen to people? Uh, are they this, truly the centre of what you do? Absolutely. What do you think, Samantha? Well, I was just thinking as you were both talking, you know, it's, it's not... It's not how pretty the kitchen is in SDA or how great the bedrooms are or how shiny the taps. Um, well, for some people it might be, but that's not the whole story. It is how a provider um, works with you to help you live in that place, how they work with the other providers that, that you might need to, to live your life well in that place um, or even, you know, of course, outside that place. And... And how are they thinking about what they need to do as the provider who's delivering the, the pretty kitchen and the nice curtains? Um, how, does that, how does that need to um, fit in the context of your whole life and your whole experience? So, you know, quality for, in SDA is not only about a good building, it's about how you engage with people who are living there, how you're providing a service to them and making sure that all the things they need to live well in that place are connected up for them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it's also about recognising that, um, uh, and I think that this is true for um, a lot of the new providers, is that, that um, understanding that people with disabilities are very much, um, you know, are tenants and consumers, just like everyone else, and will have the same concerns and, and needs around um, around their, their, their property, right? Yep. And the same desires about feeling confident that things can be organised in ways that suit them. All of us have really highly idiosyncratic ways that we like things to work uh, for us in our home environments and they don't correspond always to what other people make sense. And you want to know that, you know, it, it's so central to who we are, where we live and how our living uh, spaces are organised for us that you don't want to be adapting uh, your uh, needs and aspirations around the way the person providing those services wants to provide them. That's mm. back to front, really. Mm. 
Absolutely. I'm also thinking now about um, some of the challenges that, that you have seen in the sector um, in getting to grips with uh, quality and safeguarding. And, and it'd be really great if you could talk us through, you know, some, some things that you've seen around the challenges for, for delivering quality in SDA. Yeah, I think, you know, the things that we've observed and had people tell us about um, in SDA, uh, a lot of it stems from communication and, um, and I guess, uh, assumptions on the part of a provider that uh, a person is giving, you know, all of their thoughts and, um, and attention to um, things like what's in a service agreement, um, what their tenancy arrangement means, etc. And... And really making assumptions about uh, about um, a person's um, acceptance of, of of things that are kind of you know to cut to Graham's last point kind of almost like cookie cutter. So one service agreement is good enough for um, one person, then it must be good enough for every person. Well, it, it's not, and um, so we, we we do see a lot around communication and 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 really complicated um, agreements, which. You know, even our lawyers sometimes scratch their head at when they're trying to understand what people are being asked to sign up for. Um, so, you know, I think in, in quality, it's it's really important that providers are thinking about and working with um, people who might be living in the dwellings that they're offering to, to really think about what's important in their lives, what capacity they've got to get across, um, really complex um, pieces of, of information, legal information, um, and, and actually just put in place arrangements so that people can have a conversation and have a really straightforward set of agreements and that those agreements are then stuck with um, so that people aren't, you know, left wondering, well, hang on, didn't I, didn't I say that this was important to me? Why isn't it happening? Um, so, yeah, we see a lot, of, a lot of that about people just not, not thinking through uh, what, it, what, it, what is important to a person and making assumptions that they really live and breathe um, some of the um, complexities of SDA, which, of course, no-one does in their lives. Um, people are living their lives and they want uh, their service delivered in a, the way that they've described and they don't need to be dragged in to do a whole, whole lot of work to make that happen for them. And, George, I suppose going to uh, the important point you made earlier about what people... Uh, most frequently say they want from their providers in terms of quality, listen to mm. me. I would say across not just SDA but the work of the Commission generally in complaints is that a lot of what comes to us starts where there hasn't been attentive listening to the issues that a person's raised and the absence of that listening is very, very corrosive in terms of what it does to trust. And so the investment in really committing to listening to people and trying to get some structure around good constructive conversations because sometimes it is difficult uh, to produce exactly the outcome people want straight away. But if people don't feel heard, it's very difficult to come back from that in terms of the sort of 
trust you want in a successful working relationship between somebody who is uh, is basically uh, buying services and the people who are providing that service. So uh, it doesn't surprise me at all that people say, listen to me, and equally, it doesn't surprise me as the regulator that a lot of what we see directly stems from a failure of good communication uh, at the outset. That's right. So important. And what I also think, you know, related to that is that um, providers need to really take responsibility of that part of the, the practice standards that says, you know, in a format that I can understand. And I, I, um, I take responsibility for that because I, I was involved in the development of, of um, some of these standards and provided feedback, and I was really, really, um, you know, strong on making sure that people could access info in a way that made sense to them. And if it's, if it's about, you know, a video that explains to them, then you need to make a video if that's what the person needs, or if it's in picture format, or you need to do that. That's that's what the practice standards say. And I think um, it's also true that uh, that the commission, now that we're uh, into our third year of operation, most of the transition activity uh, largely completed, that we have a role to play too, I think, in, uh, in assisting uh, uh, in the development of things that help uh, providers uh, in facilitating some of those conversations with people with disability who are participants in this game. So um, uh, we... I think it's absolutely the case that providers need to be making uh, vigorous efforts around uh, those fit-for-purpose communication tools. And we also see our role ourselves as having a role in supporting participants to get that information, some of which is information that's created by others and some of which is information created by us. Mm-hmm. And the any particular you mentioned in positive communication, but are there any particular aspects of the practice standards that you're finding that that providers are continuing to get wrong or misunderstand? I think I'd make the point again that we made in the beginning of the conversation that this is, it is really new. And look, George, the number of times I have to say things like, they're practice standards, not audit standards. There's a clue in the title. I'd love a dollar uh, for every time I've said that because this, this is these are practice standards that have been designed so carefully uh, with input from people like you, from broader community of people with disability and people who represent them to, to describe what good practice means when you're working with someone with disability. Um, using them as a chick, as a as a tick box to pass an audit or to say, yes, I've done that, is not going to make the kind of practice change that we want to have happen in disability services. So any, I think we're, what we're at three years in with those practice standards is a, 
is a sector which is thinking deeply, I hope, about how they need to adjust what they do, how they work with people, how they engage with them to really embed that rights-based practice into every aspect of service delivery, including in how you deliver SDA to a person. Okay, that's really interesting. I think that's, you, you hit it on the head, that people just often just think, how will I pass and hold it? Rather than thinking, how can I make my service as good as it can be, right? Yeah. And, 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 and I'm just thinking, um, do you guys have any um, practical advice around that? Well, I mean, I think one of the, it's a bit related to what Sam just said and a bit related to pardon me, what I was saying earlier about rights-based service delivery. I think I have certainly observed in a long career that's included long periods of regulating that sometimes people are very focused on uh, on describing uh, their aspirations in terms of a set of values, that your values are really about what you do, not what you would like to believe about what you are doing. And so, you know, my advice to people really is, yes, be very clear about what you aspire to, but be absolutely scrupulous about assessing, well, where are we in terms of what we do and how we work with the people we work with, are we all the way there in terms of those stated values? Are we part the way there? Because it's in the answer to that question that you start to, I think, understand where you might have work to do in terms of uh, listening better, in terms of a kind of uh, shared set of expectations about what about what somebody wants and how that's going to be achieved. I think simply um, asserting an aspiration without doing the work to understand where you are in comparison to that is uh, is not the right way to go. I want to add to that and say I think there's there's a piece of work that I've certainly been thinking about quite a lot about the assumptions we make that all people with disability understand their rights. And I don't think that's the case, or at least they've been, their rights have been compromised for so long in many respects that really it'll be little things that might um, change a person's life and their experience through um, really basic things. So if provide your question was, you know, what advice will you give to providers? And I think it's a, there's a broader conversation about asking people that they're supporting what's important to them. Uh, it's it's not about saying, oh, well, you know, you, you've got this code and we've got to meet these standards for you. Well, what does that mean to that person in that moment that they're receiving some kind of service, whatever it might be? You know, what, what, what would make a difference to them? Um, and I sort of think about it in terms of, you know, you've got to know the people you're supporting. You've got to actually build a relationship with them. And in a lot of these organisations that, that are delivering in the NDIS, sometimes um, it can be the relationship can be a bit too distant in terms of the people who frame the, the training and the information for workers from actual people that are being supported by those workers. 
Um, so you've really got to, they've got to build up a dialogue at, at, at an organisational level and really take account of what people say is important to them and deliver on it. Yeah, I love that, Sam. I think that's critical, and it goes back to what the tenants were saying. They they were saying to listen, they were saying listen to me, but they also talked a lot about understand me, know what I need. Yep. And, and, and I think that what you just said there is is really about that, that, that you, if you're just uh, a provider that hasn't got a good understanding of the uh, your, your customer and doesn't understand where they're at in terms of understanding their rights or where they're at in being able to speak up for themselves, then you're going to not do what you need to do. Yeah. Yeah, and that can be experienced by someone as feeling like they're being shoehorned into the service that a provider wants to provide rather than that service adapting to their requirements. Mm. Um, and so I think, you know, part of my advice to providers is to think very careful about carefully about, well, what are the implicit and explicit features of your business model? And if a big part of what you're doing is providing supports and services to people who will have very, very different needs, how well designed is your business model about being truly responsive to that? Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, uh, you know, because you often do see um, people on the one hand inviting people to say something, so listening in a way, but because of the rigidity of the way they've, uh, they've designed particular aspects of their business model, not really being able to do anything with what they've heard in that process, which just drives a lot of frustration, I think. Yeah, that's right. And the answer um, to... Uh build the service around the person rather than force the person into a service that doesn't. Which when you think about it is at the heart of uh, what's, uh, what's different in the NDIS from the you know old approach to block funded services was actually putting the person with disability in the centre of the services that uh, that they need uh, uh, for uh, their life rather than a set of arrangements which force people into adaptation to a, a service model which generalises over uh, people's requirements. I'd like to just ask this one last question and then um, ask you if you have anything else to add, but what do you think is the best way for providers to get a sense for how well they're doing in terms of meeting the, the quality standards. And, and obviously, you know, there are audits, but we, we've agreed that audits are <laughs> not, the, uh, not, not, not what we should be worried about. We should be aiming a lot higher than that. What, what, what can... What can people be doing to know, to understand if they're, if they're doing the right thing? 
So Sam will have her own views on this, but um, but I think people often mistakenly think if they're not getting complaints that everything must be okay. But given what we were saying before about the fact that uh, for many people with disability, their sense of feeling secure and safe in making complaints because of past experience might not be all that strong. We know that organisations, any organisation that encourages people to complain uh, when they've got an issue to complain about, that over time, if you respond in good faith to those complaints, you create much more trust, much better two-way communication. So one of my bits of advice is pay very close attention to the fact that there's a reason why, in addition to people being able to complain to us, we require registered providers to have a complaints management system. But really, you should want to have a complaints management system and you should want to encourage people to use it because organisations that take seriously the feedback they get from people who are both happy and unhappy about what's happening to them become much more trusted providers of services. And we know from, you know, customer service surveys in a wide range of sectors that people are likely to feel much better about an organisation they've complained about that's responded to that complaint than an organisation they've never uh, uh, needed to interact with in, in that way. So, you know, that goes to your point about listening, but I guess a complaint system is a bit of a structured process for doing that, but but investing in it and really making people feel safe about that as an avenue for raising issues is a critical area for this sector in terms of being more responsive and maturing in the quality space. And if you're not getting any complaints, that doesn't mean you're, uh, you're doing well. In fact, it could mean quite the opposite. That's absolutely the case. <laughs> I would think that in the nature of what, uh, what we're talking about in this space and the newness of the NDIS, the newness of a number of providers, I would be concerned if I were a provider and I was not seeing complaints coming through and I would want to know why that was the case. Sam? Yeah, look, I, George, it's, a, it's an interesting kind of dilemma, I think, because you don't want to be kind of testing whether you're doing well and being too distant from people. Um, but you've got to balance that with people maybe feeling a little bit uncomfortable about talking about things that might be um, things they don't like to a support worker they see every day. And, um, you know, so how you how you as an organisation, as organisations set up um, arrangements where people get to know others in the organisation whose job it is, in fact, to check in that they're happy with what they're getting. And that doesn't have, and that has to be, I think, uh, a little bit separate to the support workers. So I think some kind of, mechanism people should be exploring to, to do that quality check-in with people just to touch base and say I'm just ringing to see how it's going or I'm just going to pop over and have a cup of tea to see how you're going you know are you happy with what we're doing for you um, and just getting a bit of distance then from the people who actually provide supports 
Um, other mechanisms I think that are really important are around how staff supervision works and performance management. And that has to be in so many of, of these services where there's such a direct impact on people's lives that there has to be real investment in that uh, and, and building up staff capability, but also, um, well, their behaviours and, and thinking about how you, you shape behaviour and how you deliver a support and we've got a great resource that you helped us design in the in the give a plug to the worker orientation module and um, and thinking about the things that that you can do in your day to day work that would make a difference for people. But yeah, I think people have to think that have to understand. I think that it's not going to be um, a satisfactory way of measuring if people are happy by just asking, um, getting this to tell their support worker or getting feedback through supervision from a support worker. You've got to have something else in the mix there. Absolutely. Before we wrap up, I just want to give you an opportunity to, uh, I guess, speak to the providers that might be listening. Are there any sort of final words of wisdom from on high that you'd like to um, share with people listening? Um, look, I always think it's very important when a system is relatively new or which, of course, the NDIS is, the National Quality and Safeguarding Arrangement, SDA, in the way it is, is new, is to, I guess, remind... We all need to remind ourselves that there's a lot of learning to be done in every part of this in order to evolve these arrangements in a way that works for the people who access these services and also works for the people who want to be in the business of providing these services. So we, of course, have ideas, some of which we shared in today's podcast, but uh, we also invite uh, people to challenge us on our ideas and also to make suggestions. There needs to be, I think, a very lively, ongoing conversation about how this area of activity in the NDIS evolves over the coming years. Gee, well, it is a pretty big um, kind of close, I guess, on um, sort of leaving people with one last message. Um, we're a regulator and people can often um, find that um, dynamic, you know, a bit confronting. But the commissions here, because we need to give providers a steer about what is going to make a difference in people's lives in participating in the NDIS. So the tools and the things we ask of providers are not things we made up in abstract um, that are somehow separate to the aspirations of the NDIS for people with disability. They are about um, the, you know, the line we all love to use, choice and control, but they're, they're about empowering people and, and helping people just live their lives well. Um, that's that's what we're asking in, in the things that we require of, of providers. So, you know, I think once you start thinking, well, what's the reason for the things I'm being asked to do in the NDIS and that pesky regulator who keeps on asking me to do things, well, there's a good reason um, and it's because it's going to deliver really, really good outcomes for people if providers deliver supports in the way that um, the standards and the code um, requires. So, uh, you know, 
it's it helpful regulation because what it does is guide the practice and behaviour that we want to see um, that will help people with disability live the best lives in their community. Absolutely, and, and I, I totally agree. I think that um, that the work of the, of the Quality Safeguards Commission is is really an extension of everything that we um, want to see in, in the NBIS, and that's uh, where people are at the centre of their services, where people can live their best lives, and, and, and also where, where services are accountable to, to their customers. Yep. <laughs> Thanks for joining us, Graham and Sam. Thanks for asking us uh, to be part of this conversation and uh, always a pleasure to spend time with you, George. Yes, indeed. Thank you. Thanks, guys. That's all we have time for on today's episode of Reasonable and Necessary, brought to you by the Summer Foundation. If you've missed an episode, check out the Summer Foundation website where you'll find links to all previous podcasts and transcripts, as well as our latest info and resources. Thanks so much for listening, and until next time, stay well and reasonable.